praise God that he's present in the reading of his word. Our, our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 to, 1 to 17. That's on page 808 in the uh, red Bible under your seat. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome. I'm Dan. I serve as lead pastor here at Trinity. It's great to be with you. Happy New Year to all of you. I hope that you had a great Christmas with friends and family. We were in California visiting our kids and grandkids, four of each. We had a great time. Um, I got to hold for the first time our newest grandbaby, Anna Margaret. What a joy, just pure joy. I was also able to wear short pants, which was a lesser joy, but a joy nonetheless. It was uh, great. Uh, The weather was just wonderful. But now we're back here, back into the cold, trying to get back into some kind of daily routine. You know how it is after the holidays. Um, 
And here we are, another new year. Uh, they just seem to keep coming, one new year after another. And we begin this January 2018 with a new series, still in the book of Matthew, that covers chapter 3 through 7, and we're calling it simply the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is a phrase that we find only in Matthew. It appears for the first time in chapter 4, verse 23, where he tells us that Jesus went, when he started his ministry, went all over Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the word for gospel in the ancient Greek that was used in the New Testament is euangelion. And the prefix ou, which is somewhat common in English, means good or pleasant. For example, a eulogy is a good word spoken about someone at their funeral. And the rest of the word, angelion, is the Greek word for message. Our word angel comes from a form of that word, and it means messenger. So this word, euangelion, means good message or good news. And we get a picture of this from the ancient world. When armies went out to war, people back home obviously are waiting to hear how it's going, wanting to hear a report from the battlefield. And once an outcome was known, runners, marathon-type runners, David Niblack-type runners, if you know David, former pastor here, they were dispatched back to the city to give a report. And the watchmen in the towers would be looking out over the horizon, hoping to see some sign, some activity. And finally, they would see the dust moving off in the distance. And then they would look at the runners, and according to one author, the watchmen were trained to discern from the way the runner was running whether or not the news was good or not. You know, if they're kind of slogging along, you know, look like they've been beat up or something, it's probably not going to be good news. But if their legs are really flying and the dust is kicking up, then, well, good news is what's expected. And that's the most basic understanding of this word gospel. It's good news. But when we get into the New Testament, we see that it's used three different ways. First, euangelion refers to, well, the first four books of the New Testament. They're called Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And when the word is used that way of these biographical sketches of the life of Jesus, they refer to a type of literature. The second way the word gospel is used, and we find it mostly in Paul's letters, is to describe everything that Jesus was and everything he did. His life of perfect obedience, his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension back into heaven, even his gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. Everything. It's the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. And I think this is the way most people understand the gospel. It's what Jesus did for me or what he accomplished on my behalf. But there's a third way that euangelion is used, as we've already mentioned the gospel of the kingdom. The good news about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now remember the runner I mentioned, David Niblack? Well, in Isaiah 52, the prophet talks about a messenger that's coming. And he's running toward the city of Jerusalem that's in ruins after it's been 
taken captive by the Babylonians. And Isaiah says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. And then he describes the watchmen in the towers and the joy that, they're, that they feel as they hear the news from the messenger, and then they look off in the horizon and they, they not only hear the good news, they can see the king coming. And the message of the prophet is this, that despite everything that has happened, the God of Israel is still king. And one day he will return to the city and set up his kingdom and bring peace and prosperity to the land. In Malachi 3, God says through The prophet, behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. God promised that he himself would return to Jerusalem. And John, in our text here, he's the messenger. He is announcing the coming of the kingdom of God, the king is on his way. Matthew quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, which in his context tells us that God of God's promise to Israel that he would bring the exiles back to Jerusalem on a divinely prepared highway on which every obstacle will be removed. It's going to be a smooth road, a straight road, an easy road. But here, Matthew uses it as a promise now fulfilled in or through John. And John's ministry, his role in the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the King and His kingdom, his task is to clear a path, to clear a straight path, to make a road. And we see from John's message that the way of the King is paved And it's made straight through repentance. It's a highway of holiness. Now, we tend to think of repentance as something similar to saying, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that went that way. I didn't mean it. Or something like admitting you did it wrong. I'm sorry I did that wrong. I'm really, will you forgive me? I'm I'm so sad for my actions. But the idea of repentance in Scripture is much more than that. It's stronger than that. It's a change of mind or a change in our thinking and in our heart that results in a radical transformation of our person. A change in our entire being. You've probably often heard it said, repentance is like you were going one way and then you turn and head in the other direction. It's a fundamental turnaround of both our thoughts and our deeds. And it includes some sense of grief or remorse over our our sin, our failure. And it produces, as John mentions to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 8, it produces fruit in keeping with the repentance. And this call to repentance in the book of Matthew, and in the ministry of John, and then in the ministry of Jesus, is huge. 
Because while it's true that God's reign over His creation is eternal, He is the King. There's no question about that. There is another sense in which the kingdom has yet to be established. People remain resistant to God, hostile toward God and His rule. They refuse to acknowledge His authority. They refuse to acknowledge His demands as King. And this resistance, Scripture tells us, is the cause for all suffering, all evil in the whole world. It subjects God's creation. It subjects humanity to suffering, to sickness, to disease, even to death. And here as the coming of the kingdom is unveiled in the Gospel of Matthew and in Luke as well and Mark and John, we see God's power over these things demonstrating the kingdom that is to come and what life will be when the kingdom comes in all its fullness. And yet, unless the problem of sin is dealt with, since it's the cause... The kingdom cannot come in all its fullness. It won't come. And that's why, as we'll see as we move through this book, Jesus' coronation, His installation as King, comes on a cross. His crown, it's made of thorns. He must overcome sin by offering His own life as a ransom for many. And this fits with our understanding of the Gospel as all that Jesus accomplished for us. The good news that is often given with five simple words, Christ died for my sins in order to bring me to God. But, we can't stop there. We can't tell people that what it means to be a Christian is simply to acknowledge that at some point in history, a man, God's Son, a God-man, Jesus, came to earth and died for our sins. And if we don't want to go to hell, if we want to live forever in a happy place, then we have to believe that's true and ask for forgiveness. And then you can go on living your life however you please. And yet if we're honest, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about this, it's the struggle of American Christianity right now. We want a faith that allows us to set the standards. We want to determine the parameters within which we operate. And often the way we live contradicts the clear teaching of Jesus regarding the coming of the kingdom. And that's why the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, is so important, I believe, for our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a Christian. It moves us, I believe, toward a clearer knowledge of what it means and the expectations that God has for us as His people, His subjects. He's our King. And as King, 
He rightfully demands our allegiance and commands our obedience. And we'll see that all the way through the Gospel of Matthew. He'll say things like, unless you're willing to turn away from your mother and your brothers and your sisters and your children, you're not worthy of me. We don't know what to do with that, do we? We kind of go like, what? What's he talking about? And when we trust His goodness and walk in His ways, we do experience life. Life in its fullest, although it's in glimpses, as it was meant to be lived. But at least for right now, it comes. This life of obedience to the King in His kingdom, it comes with a price. Because one of the things you realize as you read through Matthew's Gospel The coming of the kingdom of heaven, the coming of the king is actually not good news for everybody. There is conflict and opposition to the news of the king's arrival. And it begins early on in Matthew's story, in the passage that you preach from Everett, with the wise men and King Herod. For while the the men from east rejoiced exceedingly when they found the baby and they knelt and worshipped him as their king and gave him wonderful gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh, Herod, and all Jerusalem, we read in chapter 2. And I'm assuming the all refers there to the leadership of Jerusalem. They were troubled by the news. They were not happy about the coming of the king. So much so that Herod sought to have the baby Jesus killed. And that's not the end of it though. Once Jesus reappears as an adult, a new generation of leadership conspires to have him killed. They don't want the king. And it's interesting to note that the Old Testament anticipates this opposition. And the coming of the king and the establishment of his kingdom always includes judgment. And as an Israelite, I think it was quite natural to understand this judgment as coming against the oppressors of God's people, the children of Israel. And yet, looking down at our text, we see that baptism plays a very significant and unexpected role and is directly connected by John to repentance and entrance into the kingdom of God. I say unexpected because baptism was not a common practice in Israel leading up to the time of John the Baptist and Jesus. In fact, the only people who were baptized from what I have read were Gentiles who decided to become followers of Israel's God. Baptism here seems to be a way of saying, even though I'm an insider, I'm really an outsider. It's a a way of saying, I am embracing faith in the one true God, and I'm renouncing, even as an Israelite, I'm renouncing my former ways and activities. And I'm pledging my allegiance to the God of Israel. And what's striking about this passage is that the people who came to be baptized, at least most of them, were Jews. And in this act, they were admitting that their Jewishness 
tracing their, their, their descendant back to Abraham, their lineage back to Abraham, did not guarantee them a place in the kingdom or right standing with God. In preparation for the king and his kingdom, they were preparing their own hearts. They realized that they needed to personally repent and confess their sins and profess faith in God and then walk faithfully in his ways. And this explains to some extent why John sternly confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verses 7 and 10. For while these two groups disagreed on a lot of things, one thing they agreed on was that being a child of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, pretty much guaranteed that you were right with God. And there's in John's stern reaction to the religious establishment and pronouncement of judgment on the Pharisees and Sadducees, which is continued obviously by Jesus in the book of Matthew, A warning for us. It's easy to look at external things as the basis for our inclusion into the kingdom of God. It's easy to to count attending church on Sunday morning, three out of four Sundays a, a month, or a Bible study, or by giving to the church, or simply the fact that my folks were good people and went to church. It's easy to look to all kinds of different things as proof that our faith is real and genuine. It's it's easy, and it's a question I've been asking myself to say, well, hey, if you're a pastor, certainly, your faith is genuine, right? Or if you're an elder, then you're all good. Or maybe, I don't know what it is you're using to convince yourself that you are good, but John is telling us here, look at your heart. Look at your heart. We prepare the way for the king and his kingdom as a church and as individuals by and through repentance. The first of Luther's 95 thesis is probably the most famous. And it says this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. All of the Christian life is repentance. Regularly turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners isn't a one and done thing. It's not simply an inaugural experience, but it is the daily substance of the kingdom of God. Repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. In other words, repentance, change of mind that leads to a change of heart, a change of living and action, is part of a constant bending of ourselves heart and mind, to submit to the authority of King Jesus and to participate in His kingdom, to live according to the the ways of the kingdom. 
And as we move through this series, I think really soon when we get into the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells us how life in the kingdom should be lived, we must assume a posture of humility like the Jews who came to be baptized, and like John the Baptist who understood his place before Jesus. And we must be ready to repent of our sins. We must be willing to admit our own ongoing opposition to the kingdom when it appears. And it will appear. I mean, have you ever had a time when you're reading Scripture and you're like, I just don't think I can do that. I don't think that's me. I've had times where I've read it and think, I just don't want to do that. It's not a matter of whether it's, you know, I can or not. I just don't want to do it. How do we respond to the opposition in our own heart? Repentance. We must be willing not only to admit it, but to change our mind about these things and move joyfully toward a life of obedience. Let me say this. For a lot of people, faith is becoming less and less important. And I think the reason that's happening is because they're not engaged in a life of obedience to their king. If it doesn't grip your entire life, it begins to fade. So we need to repent. And to do this, we're going to need some grace, of course. And we're going to need some help from God. And I think in this passage, we find a lot of help and grace. Now, the first thing we see, and I want to point out, is from, and we could talk about baptism and everything that's going on here, but I just kind of want to stay focused on repentance. And, of course, Jesus doesn't need to repent, and He doesn't need to be baptized. He was sinless and holy. Yet He does it in order to fulfill all righteousness. And in that, I believe that Christ was aligning Himself with us, identifying Himself with us so that we could identify ourselves with Him so that we could live rightly before God. Grant Osborne writes, Jesus does not need to repent, but by submitting to baptism, Jesus begins His messianic work by identifying with the human need and by providing the means by which it can be accomplished. And the pronouncement at the end of this chapter by the Father, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Echoes, well, a couple of passages, but Isaiah 42, which reads, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. That delight, as we get towards the end of Matthew's gospel, is the expectation we have, right? In the parable of the servants, when God says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy prepared for you by your Master. Jesus identifies with us, and we, by means of His work, identify with Him. There's grace. He comes alongside us. But second, John tells us that Jesus will baptize us 
with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In the four Gospels, we see that Jesus' ministry is carried out in or by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when He ascended up into heaven, He promised that He would send the Spirit to help and empower God's people to walk wisely and to live godly. And that's exactly what happens. So He baptizes us. Salvation itself is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that sounds good, but then there's this other baptism that John mentions that's not so great. It's a baptism of fire. I mean, there could be a sense in which you're thinking, okay, is this the message for the new year? Somewhere I wrote down here, I think the word for 2018 for Trinity should be repent. And you might go, oh, really? That sounds horrible. Oh, gee, I might have to start looking for a new church. Uh, No, when the good news of the gospel comes, when this great announcement that they've been waiting for for centuries comes, it begins with this glorious invitation to repent. So we've got this baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we've got this baptism of fire. Now, usually when we say that just casually, it means it's baptism by making a lot of mistakes, right? You know, you tried to do something and it didn't work out. And well, that's just baptism by fire. You know, you're just going to figure it out as you go along. That's not what's in view here, I don't think. Especially when we read in verse 12 that Jesus will clear his threshing floor and that he'll save the wheat for himself, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. Fire clearly here is some kind of judgment against sin. It's not a good thing necessarily, except for those who repent. And the fire of judgment then becomes for them a fire that purifies. I can remember many years ago when we were a part of the vineyard in the 80s singing Refiner's Fire. My one desire is to be holy. God gives us help through the power of the Holy Spirit and He refines us and grows us and makes us pure through trial and difficulty. And when He does that, it is a glorious gift from the Father. It doesn't feel glorious at the time. But when it has its work in our life, this gift of grace through fire is incredible in bringing about that change of heart and change of mind that is so needed for us. But often when the fire comes, what do we do? We try and pray it away. We try and run away from it. We try and seek any and every way in which to put the fire out. I think we need to be discerning. Some fires do need to be put out. I'm not saying just endure everything that life throws at you. Don't make an attempt to avoid any difficulty. But also don't be afraid to embrace what God may be doing. So here we are. Word for the year, repent. Doesn't sound great, yet when John comes announcing the kingdom, it is great news. 
The way of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom comes through repentance. Now, whether it feels like it or not, we're in a battle. We are in a battle. There is opposition from without. Seeking to weaken your faith. Seeking to break it down. Seeking to draw you away from the kingdom. And there's opposition from within. Your own sinful desires that linger are trying to pull you away from the kingdom of God. How do we fight for our spiritual lives? How do we stay close to God? How do we become more and more devoted followers of Jesus and not less and less devoted followers of Jesus? Well, the messenger is coming with good news. He's running towards the city. He's running towards you. And he's telling you this morning, you need to get ready for the kingdom by repenting. And so this year, I know some of you have probably started new Bible reading programs. Or you thought about starting a new reading, Bible reading program. That may be as far as you've gotten so far. A couple suggestions here. First of all, Tina and I this year are just trying to decide what to do in January. We just didn't feel we had enough vision for the whole year. You ever feel that way? It's like, well, I have to plan the whole year. You know, and I've got one day to do it here. Okay, I'm going to read X, Y, and Z. So we're just, we planned January and then somewhere towards the end, we're going to plan February and kind of do it a month at a time. That sounds really refreshing to me because the year kind of changes as you go along and your needs and, and wants change. But I'll tell you something that I'm going to be doing is when I am reading God's Word, I am going to be asking God, what in me needs to bend? What in me from this passage is resisting your desire for my life? I would encourage you to do the same, and I would encourage you to read through Matthew as we preach through chapters 3 through 7. And ask yourself, what is God saying to me? How does my life need to change in order to line up with the new kingdom that He is ushering in? And then pray and repent. And when your repentance doesn't feel genuine, pray that your repentance would be genuine. But I think this is a year for us as a church in which we will fight against the things that would draw us away from the kingdom. When we would seek to enter in, not in a legalistic way, but in a glorious way, to live the kingdom of God. To bring the kingdom of God to Libertyville and Gurnee and Grays Lake and Mundelein and all the other towns around here that I can't remember the names of at this moment. Will you join me as I pray? Father, as we consider this word of repentance this morning, I want to ask You, Lord, to forgive me of my lethargy, my apathy, 
the spiritual laziness that sometimes creeps in. Lord, would you forgive us of spiritual smugness, of worldliness, Lord, would you take away the fear that sometimes grips our heart when we think about what it would look like to follow the ways of the kingdom? Would you, Lord, battle the resistance in our sinful flesh? That doesn't desire to follow you in the ways of the kingdom. Lord, would You grant to us as a congregation fruitful discussions as community groups. Fruitful discussions among friends. So that we are turning every day more and more to You and Your ways. Lord, we sang earlier that we we want more of Your presence here. We do. And Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would fall on us and empower us to be kingdom people. That we would live for Your glory. That we would live for our joy by seeking Your glory. Amen. Would you stand with us?